Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to 129 exclusive posts, including 22 audio releases and 30 videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a copy of Tudor Mystery, The Master of the Countess of Warwick, published to accompany the exhibition Tudor Mystery, A Master Painter Revealed. The lucky winner will also receive a portrait miniature of Thomas Nivett. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Gareth Russell back to the show to talk about the women of the Butler family. Educated at Oxford University and Queen's University Belfast, Gareth is an historian, novelist and playwright. He's the author of nine books, including The Palace, The Ship of Dreams, Young and Damned and Fair, The Emperors and Do Let's Have Another Drink. He lives in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Gareth. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me back. Oh, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. So we're going to be talking about the women of the Butler family. I'm so excited about this. So before we kind of dive into that, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the origins and maybe just a bit about the history of the Butler family? Sure. So they, Butler was not their original name. They were the Walters. They were a, a Norman family. They came over in the conquest of 1066 and they were given land mostly in East Anglia, quite a bit in Norfolk. And they married, as all the Norman families did at that time, they married each, you know, other Norman families. And they rose quite prominently in the court of King Henry I, then King Stephen, but particularly in the reign of Henry II. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, around that time, the butlers had what the Tudors could only dream of, and they had an excess of healthy sons. And the middle one was a guy called Theobald, Theobald Walter. And he was sent to court as a ward, as they often were, and he was placed in the household of Henry II's youngest son, the future King John. And he rose to become, depending on whether you want to go in ecclesiastical Latin root or whatever your pronunciation is, Pincerna, Pincerna, which essentially means a kind of butler. He was sort of cupbearer and a steward to Prince John then. And then during the first English interactions, it's called the Intervention is its proper name, in Ireland, Theobald went over with Prince John at a point when it was decided that Prince John would be his father's deputy, a complete catastrophe as a deputy, as only John Plantagenet could be. And John, sorry, Theobald went over with him. And in fact, we know that Theobald, even though he came from a moderately wealthy family, that Theobald was, he was not in line to inherit anything. The royal household paid for his armour. But he arrived at a really momentous moment in Irish history, which was the English had were invading, but they also had allied with the Western Irish Kingdom of Connaught. And the Dublin, the Kingdom of Dublin, was the largest slave trading port in Europe at the time. It, it took a, it captured a lot of slaves or people who became slaves from Scotland, Brittany, Spain, Wales, and England. And the last of the slave markets were burnt. And through a the slave markets were wooden. Most of the city was wooden. Everything was incinerated except at a cathedral to St. Patrick. So it was considered a miracle had happened to bless the burning of the slave markets that St. Patrick himself had once been trafficked through. So armed with this uh, holy mission, the butlers and this, this sign of, of divine providence, the butlers were then sent south. Theobald Walter was sent south with a group of English and Connaught knights to help subdue some of the old allies of, of the Dublin kingdom. He did that very well and he was given a large track of land. And over the centuries, the but the butlers sort of abandoned the name Walter. They were just known as the Pinchernas or the Pinkernas, the butlers, and eventually the name stuck. And that's how the name is still with the family today. And over the years, they aggrandized themselves. They rose and fell in different bits of favor early on, partly because John turned against Theobald, as again, only John can. But they were given a huge amounts of land in what is southern and eastern Ireland. And in particular, their base came to be Kilkenny, where they built one of the great castles in, in northern Europe. And by the high point of the Middle Ages, or perhaps for obviously of interest for us, but the Tudor period, the Butlers were one of three great aristocratic dynasties in Ireland. The others were the Fitzgeralds, who were more central, and the O'Neills were the others, and they were in the north. They still operated much more like a feudal aristocracy than, than many other families in in Europe did, but they were astronomically wealthy. Um, the Fitzgeralds and the O'Neill, sorry, the Fitzgeralds and the Butlers had an income that placed them as the two wealthiest families in Ireland, but among the top ten wealthiest 
in all of the all the British Isles. So if you think that Anne Boleyn received an income of about a thousand pounds when she became Lady Marquess of Pembroke, and this was considered staggering, the Butlers were on about two and a half, and the Fitzgeralds were on two. So they were really an extraordinarily wealthy family. And under the later Plantagenets, they've been given an earldom. They've been given the earldom of Ormond, which of course became so controversial for the Boleyns. But they'd also been given a second earldom, which was the earldom of Wiltshire, to increase their standing in England as well. And they held both earldoms until they backed the Red Rose in the uh, Wars of the Roses, for which Edward IV clipped the two earldoms apart. And that is why when Anne Boleyn had the opportunity, she sort of righted a generational, as she sought, wrongdoing by getting the two earldoms reunited for her father as his ancestors had had. So that's sort of a potted history of how they started, clawed their way up, and became this phenomenally wealthy and influential Irish aristocratic family. Wonderful. That's so fascinating. And so because we're going to be focusing on the women of this particular Mm. family, can you just give us a sort of idea of what life was like for aristocratic women at this time and in this area as well? Yeah, you had to be good at maths, really, was the big thing, because you you did a lot of accounts. You were the manager of, a, particularly if you were the Countess of Ormond, you were the manager of a colossal business portfolio. You ran a lot of these things. You had stewards to help you, and you had advisors, but, but a lot of the big decisions were taken by the women. What's interesting in this case is that the... Um, Raymond Gillespie is the historian who's done work on sort of Dublin property ownership at this time. Francis Xavier Martin, the late Irish historian, has also looked at Butler marriage patterns. And one of the things that's quite interesting is that even though women, married women under English, Welsh and Irish law at the time didn't, were, did not automatically hold any property of their own. They couldn't until they were widows. Exceptions were made for the Butler women. They actually independently owned quite a lot of land in Dublin from which they generated some of their own income as well. So they worked within the family business, if you like, the family firm, but they also had a, a, a significant amount of independence. They also, this left the, the the Butler women free to pursue a certain amount of their own interests. One of the Countesses of Ormond, called Anne, although she was nicknamed Annalida by Geoffrey Chaucer, was a great patron of literature, and she passed that on to her son, who then became one of the great patrons of literature in Irish history. So they, they, they are encouraging art, they're encouraging the economic foundations of the, of the Butler position, and the Butlers are really a family that do not pursue warfare in, in the later generations in quite the same way as, say, the Fitzgeralds would. And they are known for perhaps for being really good with really good with money, which is not something old money families generally were famous for. If you look at say the Percys or even the Fitzgeralds to a lesser extent, that they, they weren't or the Talbots, they weren't great with money. The Butlers made an absolute killing in wool, and they also in fish and trading privileges. So it was a it was a lot to manage, and the countesses were expected to to really play a pivotal role in doing that. So the foundations of their of the greatness was was the women as much as the men. Yeah, that's so interesting because Anne Boleyn as well is known for having very carefully managed her household mm. and income as well. So I wonder if that's a sort of family trait coming through there. Could be, but it really could be. Yeah. Yeah, because they were. it wasn't until much later the butlers, I mean, I'm talking like the 19th, early 20th century where the butlers were known for like not managing the money well. Um, by then, they the whole system they, they were, they'd grown up with was falling apart in front of them. So that mightn't even have been that they lost the ability to manage the money. There might just have been no money left. So tell us, Maybe just a few examples of how the Butler women specifically helped to preserve and advance the family through the periods that we would know as Wars of the Roses and then the Tudor period. 
They really, I mean, part of what they have to do, and particularly Anne's grandmother, Margaret, is they have, marriages are a big, big part of this. So the, the Ormond men are hit by a run of catastrophe that would be famous if the royal family hadn't been hit by a much greater run of catastrophe at the same time. Anne Boleyn's great-grandfather, the seventh Earl of Ormond, was the youngest, the younger of three brothers. So three brothers in succession are the Earls of Ormond during the Wars of the Roses. The first of the eldest of the brothers is um, charming, but not very brave. He was once caught trying to escape a battle with a monk's habit that he'd hidden in a ditch to get away if needs be. He is eventually caught by Yorkists and beheaded, at which point the earldom passes to his very dishy and brilliant brother, who even Edward IV likes and eventually gives him back the Ormond earldom. Quite interestingly, this, the sixth Earl of Ormond, is a brilliant linguist. He's considered one of the, the foremost English linguists of his day and thus becomes one of the best diplomats he's sent all over the world, all over Europe, sorry, I should say. But he has three children out of wedlock with an, um, an Irish commoner who lived near the estates who he loved very much called Ronaldo. They can't inherit. And the sixth Earl dies in what's now Israel on pilgrimage. And so Thomas, the, the ubiquitous name at the time, becomes Earl. And uh, the reason why I stress that the run of catastrophe in the men at this time is that as this is sort of galloping through the men, even more pressure falls on the women to hold together a dynasty that is being buffeted by storms. So obviously I would certainly not, I would say it was the sixth Earl's charm and brilliance that got them the title back after really tenaciously backing the Lancastrians. But what you really see with the women coming to the fore is that they are a generation of women, and I would really think of Margaret Boleyn as the best example of this. They are women who really hold on to, with a great deal of pride, the Irish land and this, this vast estate they own, really straddling sort of the, the southern part, not Munster, but really a very significant part of southern and eastern Ireland. And they manage it well, and they are very keen to make sure that their senior branch of the family is not supplanted and displaced by a junior branch of the family called the Butlers of Poolstown, who will become that's where Pierce, the, the, the troublemaker, depending on how you look at it, comes later. They also, so they make marriages. And what's quite interesting is in terms of this, and really Margaret Butler is brilliant. At, she clearly took a huge amount of pride in her family. Margaret Boleyn passes down a sense of the Butler, the, the almost quasi-sacred nature of Butler blood to her son and certainly to her granddaughter, Anne Boleyn, who quite interestingly only picks Butler heraldry. She It's griffins and falcons that are, that's the Butler's crests. So Anne really steeps herself in, in the Butler issue. And so I think you see Margaret Boleyn being very keen that the greatness that they very nearly lost is never lost again, that they never run that risk. The other thing that they do is they again go back to this business portfolio. They are really shrewd about who they designate um, the running of their estates to. Quite interestingly, though, some people have wondered, well, I wondered, you know, why did Margaret Butler marry William Boleyn? It's not an equal marriage. The idea, I mean, if you, I sort of said this to you before, but it's a drum I keep banging, which is that I don't know why Jeffrey Boleyn is constantly cited and stated as like the, you know, with, uh, to the exclusion of the butlers. William Boleyn is Jeffrey's son. It's not, it's, he's a Lord Mayor's son. He comes from a wealthy family, a decent family. They're not anywhere near the, the marriages that the butlers usually make. And the reason why is that around the time Margaret makes the marriage to William Boleyn, that's when they're at their shakiest because of the Wars of the Roses. So it is a marriage that's slightly been, is is definitely beneath her. She is Lady Margaret Butler of Kilkenny. She is as high as you can go in Ireland without um, treating a coronet for a crown. 
she very much kind of bulldozes the whole concept of the Boleyn heritage out of I mean, she wouldn't have seen it as being anything comparable to hers she bulldozes it from the family's collective focus there is nothing they're not interested in Boleyn after her so she preserves a sense of butler identity even when she had to make i think as she would have seen it sacrifices when the family weren't as strong as they have been before i find that really interesting because yes we do focus so much on the berlin side of the family and then there's this incredible family the butlers there for us to explore so i i'm sure that people listening have probably heard about margaret butler that you've been talking about and perhaps her sister anne as well i know if you study sort of anne berlin's life margaret really only makes kind of fleeting appearances in the in the sources because unfortunately she's quite unwell towards the end of her life. So do we know very much about the sisters, Margaret and Anne Mm. Butler? We don't know a lot about them. I think it's very clear to me that Margaret was the older one. There's, there's, there's just no way. What people sometimes make the mistake of doing is, is they look when the dispute over the earldom happens, it's not a dispute that Thomas Boleyn should get it or one of his English cousins gets it. It's whether his very well-armed Irish cousin should be allowed to take it. It's got nothing to do with whether Margaret or Anne is the, is the elder sister. What seemed to cause the confusion was, while they're negotiating the who gets which side of the family gets the earldom, they decide to do, the government decides to sort of proceed with the easiest bit of the Butler inheritance, which is to dispose the lesser English territories. And to give an idea, they ha- they, they give each of the sisters 36 manors. That's that's the kind of pocket change that the, <laughs> the butlers lesser, yeah. yeah, the lesser properties. Just get we'll give them that, split it, split it equally. And that obviously strikes a bit of a strange note. It's unusual that there wouldn't be some indication of seniority in in English land cases, but the Irish aristocracy continued to occasionally operate with residuals of something called the Breton system, whereby the for the men it would lead to something called the Tonishta, but it and that they would be sort of deputy leaders alongside the, the the senior head of the family who would have inherited everything in England. It also meant that sometimes when it came to dividing up land, they just did it equally between the children, not the main pile, but the residual, the kind of the, the residual piles, they would sometimes split it equally. So that's why I think there is a clean, even split in dividing the English inheritance of the seventh Earl between his two daughters. Very interestingly, Anne St. Ledger, various names. The younger of the sisters does very clearly indicate that she is backing her nephew Thomas Boleyn to be the next Earl, because when it comes to designating someone who will manage her Irish estates for her, she picks Thomas Boleyn's brother James. She picks her Boleyn nephew. So I think the two sisters were very much on the same page, that their father had been the seventh Earl. Okay, they couldn't inherit, but there was absolutely no way distant cousin Piers should get it. And that the next in line had always been taken to be Thomas Boleyn. And the only reason, and the, the Archbishop of Dublin weighs in and says it's very clear it's supposed to be Thomas Boleyn. The Dublin law courts also back the Boleyn side. But Sir Piers, one of the Butler cousins, has six daughters, all of whom he marries into military families on the fringes of the Butler estates. So he really has a stranglehold on it, and it is ultimately might versus right. And it is only when Anne Boleyn comes to prominence that this 14-year law legal case is settled. And she quite interestingly behaves with great tact. She, there's a, suddenly they, they she kind of helps create this this backup earldom, the earldom of Ossory, that sort that hadn't existed before, and they give that to Piers to, to palm him off. And she does involve him in the the appoint the decisions to nominate new bishoprics to or the Bishop of Ossory, which was on their estate in Ireland. She asks him to come on, on board to discuss the new policy. So I think 
um, the two sisters, getting slightly ahead of myself there, but, but the two sisters, I think, unfortunately, we don't know massive amounts about their personality, but everything indicates they were very firmly on the side, on the same side when it came to the dispute over the earldom. The other thing I would say about Margaret is, yes, you're right, there was, there was she wasn't very well. There was a long history with dementia towards the end of her life, during which her son, Thomas, brought her to live with them. And they do seem to be very close. But quite interestingly, before she got ill, before she fell sick, they, this is a very confident, confidently worded series of letters. She's very clear when she's talking to Thomas Boleyn. This is our claim. I will be led by you legally, but this is our family's and we're not giving it away. So she was a tenacious lady. And I think, you know, dementia is such a is such a horrible disease. I can't, I mean, it's it's brutal today. I cannot imagine what it's like in the 16th century. and. Yeah, it, it, but Thomas Boleyn was a very, very protective, loyal son. And I think that that's an interesting side of him that we don't usually see. But certainly she does, the, her and her sister seem to have had a very amicable relationship. Beyond that, unfortunately, we, we just don't know. Yeah, I think that's so interesting what you were just saying about Thomas Boleyn and caring for his mother for all those years and what must have been incredibly difficult situation. Of Horrific. course, Margaret's still there. She's sort of the last woman standing, isn't she? Yeah. Once they're, they've all gone, which is quite well, incredible. Which is sort of the the appalling mercy of dementia. Sometimes there is that's that you know I think it was Graham Greene or someone said the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. And sometimes the fact that her mind had gone or was going spared her. I think the full knowledge that her two of her grandchildren had been executed, her daughter in law and her son were all dead before her. So it's um there you know it, the the only silver lining to the horror of her final years is that she didn't know what Henry VIII had, had done to the family and then time had done as well. So tell us a little bit about some of the other prominent butler women. Well, quite interestingly, one of the first, Theobald, who I mentioned first, his his wife is allegedly Maud, but she was allegedly the inspiration for Maid Marian. So after he died, she went back to England and she married a local authority figure who protested against King John and had to go and live in the forest where he allegedly kept himself alive with a group of followers robbing people. So if you, if you think he's the inspiration for Robin Hood, then the, the butler matriarch is the inspiration for Maid Marian. I've mentioned that the Countess, who was a great patron of Geoffrey Chaucer, were told she was extraordinarily beautiful, but more beautiful than the sun, is what we're told. And the butlers are a famously very good-looking family. In fact, George Boleyn looks... It's interesting once you start to go back, the, the, the dishy butlers I mentioned, they're all described as tall, dark hair, some of them blue eyes, some brown, but, you know, muscular, athletic, well-built, very, very handsome family. The women are usually described as quite petite in build with long dark hair and very beautiful eyes. Mm. So again, that <laughs> sounds familiar. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. The butlers are, the, and they're a charismatic family and they're a family with a great interest in literature. We also, I think what we, there's this, there's, they build sort of an acropolis. They build a, an area of tombs and there's a lot of the butler women are English. A, a lot of them initially are English. They're, they're gentry families. But also we see the butlers as they go higher and higher, they start to make these great aristocratic marriages with other Irish families and brought if they're going to marry some of the families that are on the, the estate boundaries of, of the butler lands, because obviously that does buy peace. But these families are, there's still a lot of tension. There's more tension between them than there is in England. We know that there is another Margaret Butler who marries into the Fitzpatrick family. And the Fitzpatricks, of course, they were they become barons of Upper Austria, but they were an old Gaelic family, they originally MacGillparg, until they anglicised the name. And they had been royalty before the invasion centuries beforehand, but they they had a really 
brutal relationship with the Butlers. And the price of this Lady Margaret Butler's marriage to the Fitzpatricks was grim indeed. Uh, one of the Fitzpatricks had in an amb- had ambushed and killed one of the Butlers. And so the this gentleman was Dermot Fitzpatrick or Dermot McElporrig again at that stage but he was Tonishta so he was a deputy leader the leader of the family was his was his elder brother Brian and when Brian proposed marriage to the butlers and wanted to buy peace and wanted to marry this particular Margaret Butler the butler said well fine but give us Dermot give us your brother who killed one of us and Brian tricks Dermot into going to visit them and they imprison him in a cell for the rest of his life. And that was, so that was what he was prepared to do to get the butlers on side. So they are, they have a um, Game of Thrones-esque history littering. (laughs) Yeah, littering Irish history in the, in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. But if, but a fascinating, fascinating story. I mean, I just find the butlers utterly mesmerizing kind of all these, these details. Absolutely. They are. And I think we need to see more documentaries on the butler family. Um, So very much so. Yeah, you've talked about some of those other families, the O'Neills, the Fitzgeralds. What was the Butler family's connections or links like with these other families of the day? Obviously, this quite strained with some families. Yeah, they were strained with the Fitzgeralds for a lot of the time because the Fitzgeralds were the, the, the O'Neills. It didn't ever really get that tense with because they were so far apart. They're, you know, the O'Neills are an Ulster family. So they're far, far, and they were, they had also, you know, the, the O'Neills are the oldest of the three of them. The O'Neills have been there since about 637. So they are, they're, they're settled. And also because of that geographical distance, there is no tension really between the Butlers and the O'Neills. The Fitzgeralds and they are right next to each other. And they also tend to have slightly different agendas. So the Fitzgeralds tended to be opportunistic Yorkists, whereas the butlers were closer to sincere Lancastrians, not totally. I mean, everyone's playing a game here. And the butlers certainly did not get involved in any of the Perkin Warbeck stuff or anything, the the Lambert Simnels that the Fitzgeralds were knee-deep in. To the butlers, it was perfectly obvious that Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck were about as close to being members of the Yorkist dynasty as a hot cross bun. It just was very clear to them that this was nonsense. And they, and so that further soured relations as well. But the Fitzgeralds were getting more and more powerful. As, uh, they, they did, the Fitzgeralds played an absolutely blinder of a game really, during the Wars of the Roses and the way the butlers didn't quite do. So a lot of it was that the butlers were quite content to focus on their own estates, whereas the the Fitzgeralds had ambitions to be the Lord Deputies. And they so it, it, there was a fair amount of tension, though quite interestingly, the Earl of Kildare, who was head of the, the, the Fitzgerald dynasty, really did weigh in on this inheritance dispute and said it's very it's supposed to be Thomas Boleyn. Like that's the rule. Those are the rules. And part and that was despite having had, you know, having dealt with Sir Piers Butler before. So I think there were tensions there, but when it came to aristocratic precedent and the rules that bound them all being violated, the Fitzgeralds weighed in on the Butler Boleyn side of things, which I think is telling where their priorities lay. You've talked a little bit about how the Butler family, I suppose, inspired Anne or what traits she may have yeah. had from there, from that family. But how do you think it actually shaped Anne's place and Berlin we're talking about here in, in, in English yeah. aristocracy? Hugely. The, it's the only way that you can, everything about her makes sense. All these things we've acted like they're anomalies or bizarre. Everything makes sense when you realise that she saw herself as a butler. That's, you know, the heraldry is the is the tip of the iceberg. So when Harry Percy says to to Wolsey, she is 
she is of equal ancestry to mine. English historians who said, oh, that's just him being in love, they're wrong. He's completely right. They have exactly as old an ancestry as the Percys do. It's also worth remembering the Anglo-Irish aristocracies and the English aristocracies regard matrilineal descent as being as equal in proving your bloodline as paternal ancestry be. It doesn't prove your surname, but it does prove the purity or the blue-bloodedness um, of your the purity of your ancestry, they would have called it. But also, or your descent of right good noble families, etc. Many, many euphemisms for it. So it really she's also she's brought back to marry a butler cousin. That's part to, to to keep the family united. So she is very much off that cut from that cloth. What I find fascinating beyond it explaining her place in society and you know her being given these opportunities. Yes, her father was a well-connected ambassador, but it's still rare to be offered a Habsburg court places at that age from being English. The other thing that I think is really interesting is when I went back and started looking at the butlers in depth and reading some of the Irish sources as well where I could, one of the things that stood out was a lot of her personality. In this kind of nature versus nurture thing, I don't ever really know fully where I stand, but there have to be some inherited traits. And Anne got all, all of them, that they have this, the butlers had this Olympian ability to hold a grudge that they also were incredibly charming and kind until you they did not suffer you getting in their way very lightly. That's when they became a bit more prickly. They also were great patrons of the arts. I mean, the White Earl, he's referred to as the White Earl, and we're not really sure why. So it may have been that he was very, very pale. We think that you know, that there may have been something, possibly, and we don't know possibly anemia, something there, but he's referred to as being very, very pale. But he was a great patron of the arts. She, They're also very good linguists. That's a trait the family have as well. And a great interest in architecture, which you see at Hampton Court with Anne, and you see her being somebody who's really interested in that. Obviously, also part of that is just contextual. Well, that's part of a renaissance and medieval education for the upper classes. But the personality traits are all very, very much the butlers. And the butlers are also, they're feisty and brave, which I think she certainly had it, it, it spadefuls, really. So I think, and funny, I find, um, I was talking about this with another Irish historian, and they said, like, how do, like, She's very clearly a butler. Very, if you're, it's just interesting when you're looking at it from a perspective that this family, it was so, so important and had a, a lineage that made the Howards look like they'd washed up on the shore a couple of minutes ago. It's that's quite interesting to me because, yes, the Howards were dukes. You, there were no Irish dukes at this stage. The butlers were as high as you could go in Ireland. But what was very interesting to me is, uh, first of all, it's a testament to the Howards' press. They have, they have, like he, the Duke of Norfolk's the third Duke, yet we always refer to them as the, the oldest of the old money families. They weren't. They just were very good at pretending they were. But again, they would have the Mowbray ancestry, which certainly, certainly helped. But I think when you look at things from a different perspective, this family was considered one of the great families of Northern Europe. They were they were old in the way that many, many families had not survived the Wars of the Roses. They hadn't, or they just generally hadn't survived the Middle Ages. The Butlers were an extraordinarily talented bunch of survivors, which sounds odd when you consider what happened to Anne Boleyn. But in fairness to her, none of the butlers had really had to deal with someone as close to them as Henry VIII. I mean, those are just odds you're probably not going to beat. But in general, the butlers were, I think, like her, tenacious, charming, not to be messed with, fascinated in the arts. And I think also they, there's a quality about the butlers. And I, a friend, a colleague said this once, and I'm butchering it, but he said they have a real, there's something about them that you get a sense of life, like they really lived. 
there's a, a zest for living in the sources of the butlers and that I think she certainly had as well yes I think we get a, a sense of that from George as well you're listing off traits oh, yeah. and I'm thinking he has lots of those as well doesn't he yeah George? absolutely and I also think Mary does as well I yeah. mean I think you know what yeah. people forget about Mary is she says in this letter where she's trying to get back to court she says I've, re I've read in many books of stories of kings and queens so she clearly like all the butlers enjoyed a good story and read a lot i think this idea that anne was cerebral and mary wasn't i don't think that's necessarily very fair no absolutely not and it does make you wonder about the the famous bee necklace doesn't it gareth it's, it's quite interesting yeah <laughs> yeah yeah true actually double double pun there absolutely it could have been because also the chitters loved kind of i mean why have one bit of symbolism and you can have six oh well it's exactly sort of... i think knowing <laughs> Anne, that's um yeah, yeah that's really yeah Really interesting. So this has been so fascinating, such an interesting discussion. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to now and what you're doing? Well, I, I would love to one day write a history of the family, but I'm going to have to take a year or a couple of years to um to really look at that and also to learn medieval Irish, which is, I might be being quite dim, but it is tricky. And so you really have to start with modern Irish and then you have to go. It has changed for many, many reasons. The links aren't always. It is it is a bit like it's harder than going from modern English even to, to 16th century English. So I am trying my level best with that. And I think I'm making decent progress. I'm fairly pleased. Terrified, though, that that at some point it's all just going to become utterly impossible. But so I think, I mean, I'm, I will take a couple years to work on that. I'm probably going to work on something else in the next year. So I haven't quite decided what that is yet but the butlers do actually make quite because i'm sort of so fascinated by them the butlers do make quite a few appearances in my next book the palace about hampton court oh, james that's butler that's... Anne's cousin spent a lot of time there in the 1520s barnaby fitzpatrick who i mentioned um, was half butler time there as well and in the 17th century the marquis of ormond came there i mean a very um faithful and important audience with king charles the first so i talk a lot about about them in the next book which is out i think in august this year in the u.s and australia sorry uk and australia in december in uh america and canada which will hopefully give me time to do book tours in both but it has been really interesting just seeing the ways in which this family crop up you know even when you're not directly looking at them they're there and they're so important so i've loved it i mean i think it's 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 something that i think is just the the richest history and it's so it is hidden and and i and i you know i i hope i would one day be able to, to do a decent study of this family in the in those early generations oh i absolutely cannot wait for that and i cannot wait to read your new book as i'm sure lots oh, of people are you. excited thank about i love hampton court so hampton court yeah, written by a, gareth a... russell is pretty cool well, you've written such an extra, I mean, like you I mean stuff you wrote about uh, sort of in the footsteps of Anne Boleyn. I just remember thinking, wow, this is, because I, I, I really, the in the footsteps of Anne Boleyn was sort of in my pocket when I was doing Young and Damned and Fair, because I was traveling around where Catherine had been. And so much of it was just priceless. I mean, I, I think I should remember Amtel sometimes. Like, That's, this is, they're the only people who've written about Amtel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that was wonderful but yeah i mean the Hampton court i think you said one of your favorite places it is just it is such an extraordinary arc of history that trying to pick out these stories of you know people who lived between 95 and 2016 was fascinating and challenging because i as we've said at the start of the book look if i'd done everything this book would be a doorstopper yeah so you so picking out the stories that weave together in this in this wonderful place was such a privilege well gareth thank you so much this has been so wonderful chatting with you as always and i oh, thank you having you back on in the future to talk absolutely absolutely i'd love to thank, thank you. you so much thank you 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music